So the rest of the bands joined Ad Rock in L.A., where he was living, where they signed a much better record deal with Capitol Records and got an advance to start working on a new album, which would be called Paul's Boutique. And they took more control over the recordings, and they worked with the Dust Brothers, who would co-produce the next four albums with them. So shortly after they relocate, he relocated to Los Angeles, Adam Yauk obtained a large quantity of liquid acid. He quickly set about consuming it, most of it, often while he was skiing. And he also smoked huge amounts of chronic weed. And they said that creatively it worked for him for a bit, you know. Mike D said that the acid experience gave him the ability to see, like, wow, this is great, let's play this and on everything at the time for Paul's Boutique, and it shifted his mind enough for him to see that he became a great influence on the album. But, you know, I think that was him probably decompressing it and everything. So while recording Paul's Boutique in Los Angeles, they rented a house, all three of the guys rented a house called the G-Spot, and it was owned by Alex and Madeline Grasshoff. By the way, Alex Grasshoff was a huge producer. TV producer did a lot of shows so Mike D took over the master bedroom suite upstairs which had a lot of clothes that they dressed in if you saw the Paul's Boutique album the ladies hey ladies where they're dressed like 70s guys and that's what um, Alex Grasshoff produced a lot of 70s shows so um, he dressed in some of those it's a famous story in the book about them going to a Dolly Parton's party and they told Mike D they were going to dress in some of them clothes. And Mike D shows up with the clothes on, and they're like in regular clothes. Like, what are you doing? What are you doing? They're at uh, Dolly Parton's house, and they see Bob Dylan. Oh Mike D is a huge Bob Dylan fan. He goes over there, and Mike Dylan, Bob Dylan says something. I call him Mike Dylan, but Bob Dylan says something. But yes. So anyway, Yauk took over the Media Center library room, and it had a massive 80s television and television and oversized reclining leather bad boy chair and couches. Ad Rock took over the pool house, separate from the main house, but he loved it because it was right on the side of a mountain and it had a bar in there and there was a window that looked right to the bottom of the pool and people can look at the inside sleeve of Paul's boutique of all them inside of the pool. Somebody took a picture of them while they were at the bottom of the pool. One had their mouth open and they were having a good time. But anyway, during this time, Yauk began, began his spiritual quest. First, he read the Bible, and then he branched out into books about Native American spirituality. And so he would say that just as we were finishing Paul's Boutique, we got our own places, and I was going out to clubs. By the way, he took his place in a log cabin somewhere in L.A. Somewhere in L.A. he got a log cabin. I don't know where. Not in the city. It's probably up in the mountains, I would assume. I don't think so. I got to look it up, but I, for some reason, I don't know why, but we'll, we'll say up in the mountains, but I don't think so. Hey, maybe, think... maybe it was at the same log cabin that was in the Stars Born. Yeah, that there was supposed go. to be in L.A. Somewhere. Maybe yeah. so, yeah. Could be. Yeah. He said, I was going out to clubs a lot less. I got a bit more introverted and spent a lot more, spent a lot more time on my own reading. I would just go down to the esoteric bookstore and wander around. And so the track, A Year and a Day, hinted at a new state of mind, which he links his drug experience. He said, I'm going to the limits of my ultimate destiny, destiny, feeling as though somebody somewhere were testing me, and he who sees the end from the beginning of the time. And I think he was starting to, start to go into this spiritual side of himself and look at how he was acting. 
And so before they moved into the G spot, they stayed at the Mondrian Hotel in Hollywood. And from their ninth floor, they would throw eggs at people who were lining up in front of the comedy store. They loved that. Across from the street, uh, and actually right up the street. Eventually, they got a very diplomatic letter from the hotel management that says, we've had some reports of things falling out of your window. If there's a problem with your window, please let us know. So then they were like, okay, we're not going to throw anything out of the window. Let's just drive around and throw eggs at people. So they would drive around the limo and throw eggs at people. That's how they came up with the song Eggman on Paul's Boutique. So if they threw an egg at you, would you go after them and beat their ass? Absolutely. I mean, but if they were running around in the limo. If it hit his car, he certainly would. Oh, yeah. So if they hit your car, your nice BMW, and then you get out and go, what the hell? And then you see it's the Beastie Boys, what would you do? Throw an egg back at them. I wouldn't give a shit. Yeah. I love him, but Before anyway. Before we continue, I want to read you what is in the Cookie Puss ice cream. Oh, cake. my God. You're still on this. <laughs> well, I forgot. I, like, went you to open got my to. phone, and I okay. had the Yelp page So, in honor of... It's honor $49.99. Of, the Cookie Puss the cookie cake Puss is forty nine $50, and there is layers of freshly made vanilla and chocolate ice cream separated by a layer of chocolate crunchies topped with a scoop of chocolate ice cream in a sugar cone, two chocolate chip cookies... White whipped topping, milk fudge, and shredded coconut. Serves 12 to 15 people. You know what? For my birthday this year, <laughs> I should have a cookie puss. You Careful cookie what puss? you wish for. You might be getting one. How do you get the fudgy whale ice cream cake? I want cookie puss. In Westwood, California. Westwood. They have a Carvel's in Westwood? It's like the only one. By UCLA? It's the only one. Not in New York. They're still in New York. Well, no, I mean in LA. Okay. They branched out because they were only in New York. There was one in Arizona I went to as a kid all the time. No, you did not. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. This is is by the Porsche of Beverly Hills Porsche. There's one right next to it. Oh, wow. That is crazy. That's funny. Good, we'll go in when I get my first Porsche. I love Porsche. Perfect. Once we start selling some ads on here, then Yay. we'll be good. Wait, we have to go to this Carmel someday. That's so we got. Funny. Oh, we're going to go this year. Get ready. <laughs> I might even take my microphone. Do it. So, okay, we talked about the Eggman song. So, though it's an undisputed classic, Paul's Boutique was a commercial flop. People don't know that. Uh, and it shocked the, the record company and... The Beastie Boys, because they had just received an advance of $750,000. People don't know this. Advances mean that the oh, band you pay- recoup that. Yeah. The band pays that shit. Yeah. They're fucked. That's not good. So in 1992, y'all got a new girlfriend. He had another girlfriend named Aurora Walker. But this one, he, her name was Lisa Ann Cabasa, and she was an actress. And he started to get into snowboarding, and he would spend time in Utah. You snowboard, right? Mm-hmm. You like it. I do. He loved it, too. And uh, he'd rented an apartment in Utah with a professional snowboarder named Mike Bassage. And Mike would let her say that they'd go snowboarding during the day, and Yauk was pretty good, not very acrobatic, but he remembered him as a quiet and good-hearted man. And he said, we do graffiti together at night, and one time the the cops caught him, which is a big deal, but obviously they didn't arrest him or anything. So I said that he moved into a log cabin in L.A., and they started, the Beastie Boys started making pause tapes for each other that would go from jazz instrumentals into reggae into hardcore hip-hop, and they decided to create an album just like that, a pause tape 
wherein they would put together these different types of music. And Mike D came home kind of drunk one night, crashed into a wooden gate at the G-Spot house, which is that rented house. And he was like, oh my God, I've got to fix this because Madeline and all of them, this is a rented house. And so this guy named um, Mario Codato, which is one half of the Dust Brothers, recommended his friend Mark Ramos Nishita to do some uh, construction. And Mark became the carpenter for the gate, and he started talking about music with Mike D and the Beasties. Things unfolded pretty quickly, wherein he became Money Mark. So people don't know, he's the keyboardist. So that keyboardist was first the construction guy. Hmm. And he traveled with them on all, he played on all their albums since then and all their tours, you know, before what happened to Adam. So after Paul's Boutique bombed, they decided not to go on tour. Their management told them, don't go on tour, that, that album bombed. So they took the rest of the advance to, um, from Capitol and they created their own studio place, place space called G-Sun Studio. And it was this old ballroom over in Echo Park somewhere. And next to it was a plumbing shop and it was called Gilson's, but the I and the L had fallen off of the sign, so the owners just put a little hyphen there and made it G-Sun, <laughs> and they got busy recording their next album, Check Your Head, which is what you guys were talking mm-hmm. about, and they built skateboard ramps in there and put a basic basketball hoop in there. Do you know how to skateboard? No, no. I'm shocked. I thought that you were going to say yes. I mean, I could, I could skateboard. Being but that you know how to snowboard, I'm I mean, sure you do. I can ride a skateboard, but I'm not doing like kickflips and jumping a five-stair or grinding a rail or any of that right. crazy shit. Right. No. People don't know that at G-Sung, there's, um, oh, God. He's the, he's the, um, you know what? Look up the song by Justin Bieber, which is Where Are You Now? Mm-hmm. And one of those guys, or, or um, May, he's a major laser. So give me the members of Major Laser, and one of those guys is the one that started at G Sun as a producer, and he even helped out MIA. I don't know oh, if you guys Diplo? know. Diplo, Diplo was and at G Sun. and Skrillex did the song with me. Well, okay, Diplo was at G Sun too during this time. Wow. He was probably like an engineer, and he learned during this time. He was there during this time with and these guys. He's one of the biggest engineers. He is one of the biggest engineers, and he started at G. He was at G Suns during this time. Isn't that amazing how these guys, once you see how much these guys branched out with all these people, you're going to be in, it's going to blow your mind. But Diplo, yes. If you look it up, say Diplo and G-Sun, you'll see there's a connection. Um, So for their third album, Check Your Head, they were reluctant to just rap, partly because they felt out of place in the changing hip-hop scene because it was gangster rap by this time Mm -hmm. with with, um, Straight Outta Compton and all that. And instead they rented Bennett returned to their instruments, recording endless jams for a year and a half. And it was Yauk who pushed them to get on with it, quietly recording the rap song Jimmy James on his own with producer Mario Caldado, Mario C as we call him. And after that, they went crazy and the tracks just started coming in for Check Your Head. And they created their first album built around both rapping and live musicianship. During the recording, Yauk and his girlfriend went, to, to a, went on a trip to India. And when he came back, he started wearing different clothes, started growing a beard, and changed his diet. During Paul's Boutique, Mario C. They, Mario C. said they, eat, they ate at uh, Lowry's Rib, Prime Rib. Have you ever eaten there? It's mm-hmm. delicious. Have you eaten there, Megan? It's delicious. 
Lowry's every night, but during Check Your Head, he became a vegetarian. And he wrote the closing track, Namaste, about their about his trip. And he began seeing an L.A.-based holistic healer named uh, Quentin Rodemeyer, who helped him quit drugs and alcohol and to find ways of tapping into his spiritual energy without dropping acid or pot and all that stuff. And sadly, during this time, their old NYC buddy, Dave Silken, died of a drug overdose. Mm. And he had went on tour with them all around the world during the License to Ill days. And it was a catalyst, I think, for all of them. Um, all of these changes made him increasingly eager to, eager to make amends for the sexist lyrics and behavior of the early Beastie Boys years. They had made amends with Kate Schellenbach. He evolved into a very sweet and gentle guy. And he had Mario film him smashing his gun with a sledgehammer. And the scene appears in a 1992 music video. Once the weapon is cracked beyond repair, he offers a broad, relieved smile. And on Check Your Head, and especially the fourth album, Ill Communication, he pushed Mike D and Ad Rock towards putting more positive messages in their uh, album. And uh, Mike D says that me and Ad Rock, we weren't entirely entirely comfortable with it at first but he said you know when he was talking about the whole thing because um I think Yauk had put a line in Sure Shot which is in communications opening track which says I want to say a little something that's long overdue the disrespect to women has got to be through and it took a little getting used to Mike D says but we also felt it and it wasn't like he was on his own um which is kind of amazing when you think about these guys the friendship Mm-hmm. that superseded everything that they did. Well, I mean, it's like, look, I mean, it's... Because when your friend gets very religious or that's spiritual, you get uncomfortable. Everybody does. Of course. I mean, look, they lived the life that has been their life. I mean, they were shitheads from Brooklyn. Like, right. They were just, they were terrors. I mean, that's how they were. And right. Look, I mean, I mean, I guess that's a testament to how good of friends that they were. Mm-hmm. Because they, I mean, they supported him. Otherwise, like, dude, fucking Yauk has gone off his fucking rocker right you that know, can be like, tricky with with creative differences and mm-hmm. things like that with in like especially I, I think of like blink 182 mm. in 1993 yauk returned to the far east visiting nepal where he met tibetan buddhists in exile who taught him about both their religion and their perilous political situation their beliefs felt congruent with the ideas that he was hearing from roadmeyer his uh, spiritual teacher, and by 1996, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, he started to consider himself a Buddhist, but we'll get to that. Anyway, a college student named Erin Potts was living in Nepal on her college year abroad when Adam was over there. And she said, Adam came over to Kathmandu. And see, I didn't know the place called Kathmandu. I just remember it from the um, Janis Joplin song. Mm-hmm. But anyway, it was a big deal for the expatriates living there, she said, because everybody went bananas because he was part of the Beastie Boys. And she says, I didn't care because I hated the Beastie Boys, hated them. And she said, on that trip, though, the group he was traveling with had run into a bunch of Tibetans who had just escaped from being killed, I guess, in Tibet. And they were so excited to be out where they were that they had an impromptu party right there and their story had a big impact on Adam Yauk. And enough so that the day after Aaron met him, they drove around the Tibetan part and sat in a monastery for a long time. And when he came back from Tibet, 
he definitely changed. The whole Buddhist thing is about detaching yourself from the pleasures and material goods. At this point, he's even, he started giving up snowboarding. And he swore off drinking. His reading and snowboard trek through Nepal led him to Tibetan Buddhism. And it is here that his life truly changed. And he found a set of principles, love, compassion, altruism, nonviolence, that made sense of his past and his future. And he became politically involved as well, co-founding the Mela Ripa Fund in 1994 to raise awareness of China's, China's brutal oppression of the Tibetan people, which we all know about the Dalai Lama. And at first, when people would call Yauk a Buddhist, he'd say he wasn't a Buddhist because he didn't feel that he was committed enough to command that label. Mm. So he became full on in 1996, and he didn't even like his friends to like bring food into his apartment uh, because he was afraid it would attract bugs and he couldn't, couldn't kill anything. Okay. You know? Mm. And so he always kept his sense of humor intact. You know, he didn't really change. He was a skilled mimic, and people don't notice about him, but he admired Peter Sellers and the Monty Python crew as much as they were his musical heroes, as much as any of his musical heroes. And he saw no conflict between his new religion and his penchant for silliness. Uh, Mike D said that when they were running around smashing up cars, wearing disguises in the sabotage video, Yauk was like, Monks play tricks on each other's too, Mike, you know, all the time. And it was some post-Buddhism that Yauk, who wore lederhosen and fake beard, to play his filmmaker alter ego, Nathaniel Hornblower. That's who directed all their videos after. We'll get into who directed the other one, which I was telling you guys about on Sabotage. Uh, but, you know, Nathaniel Hornblower, people can go on YouTube and look at the video, the 1994 VMA Awards, and that he was in that disguise and he was like a Swiss German and he came up there when uh, R.E.M. Everybody Hurts won. And he came up there and he had this whole Swiss German accent and talking about, you know, oh, this is a farce. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And he had such a funny mixture of deep humility with deep absurdity and playfulness, says his sabotage director. You want me to give you a hint who the sabotage director is who became huge? He directed her. He, direct, he directed her, and he was a part of the whole jackass movement. Like, he oh, was Lord. the number one guy who directed the jackass. Jeff Tremaine? The other one besides Jeff Tremaine in the credits. Spike Jones. Spike Jones. That makes sense. Spike Jones. You, you know what Spike Jones... Like, Spike Jones fits, like, the Beastie Boy, like... These were his. These were his <laughs> idols. They were his friends. He became. They got him started on sabotage. Wow. You know who? You know who he would go on to marry for a bit. They were only married for a little bit. Who Spike Jones? Yeah. Who? Hint. She directed Lost in Translation. Oh. Coppola. I was about to say yeah, Coppola. Really? Sophia. They were married. They were married. Huh. So. When the Beastie Boys, so see, now you know why they're so, see how these, they break, people get attached to them, and then they go off and do great things next to these guys. Mm -hmm. So when the Beastie Boys co-headlined the 1994 Lollapalooza Festival, 
they co-headlined with Smashing Pumpkins. I don't I would know if you know. I would have loved to been there she for that. She loves Smashing Pumpkins. You do? Mm-hmm. Oh, well, then you're going to love this story. Can't wait. Yalk Brout brought a group of Tibetan monks. <laughs> I've been to Lollapalooza. That is not a place for fucking Tibetan monks. I went to Lollapalooza too. Did and you? I didn't know that I should have waited around and watched the Beastie Boys when I went. Years later from this. But anyway. Yes, because my friend worked at the management company that managed Perry Farrell, who started Lollapalooza. Wow. Anyway. So Yauk brought a group of Tibetan monks along for the two-month tour, and they would go up there and chant. And Billy Corgan, leader of the Smashing Pumpkins, said that the initial vibe was like, you know, they're Yauk's monks. Like, what? What's the deal? What's the angle? But he had a real. He said Yauk had a real reverence for these guys, and Corgan was one of the only other musicians on the tour who actually talked to the monks. And says that the Pumpkins frontman, Billy, said those conversations led to a spiritual awakening for me. Mm. And he said that would later save him from a suicidal despair. Wow. Isn't that something? It's, I mean. Look at how much good you can do, right? Mm -hmm. He's Catholic, by the way. Is he? Billy Corgan. But he said that these guys influenced him. Well, these guys influenced him. He said it. He said they influenced him, and he, it led to a spiritual awakening. That's what Billy Corgan said, and it would save him from suicidal despair, these Tibetan monks. Thank God. The weird thing about the Beastie Boys, I should go ahead and throw this in here, is that it's weird because the more I say, you know, all of our peers, you know, go on and do other things, and I noticed when I started doing, you know, clearances, a lot of set deck people would go, okay, so for this movie, can we have a Beastie Boys post? Yauk sampled vocals from other Tibetan monks on ill communication, and he decided to direct royalties from the songs in question to the Tibetan cause. So he formed a charity called Milarepa Fund for that purpose, and I knew what Milarepa meant, but I forgot. But it quickly turned into something much bigger, and he was soon putting together the Tibetan Freedom Concerts, which aimed to raise awareness of China's oppressive occupation of the nation. And Yauk personally made calls to recruit artists, which is your boy Smashing Pumpkins came up. And over seven years worth of shows, there were a tribute to his, you know, it was a tribute to his influence because everybody came. The Smashing Pumpkins. Uh, U2, Pearl Jam, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Radiohead, A Tribe Called Quest. Anybody you can think of came to those concerts. Herbie Hancock, everybody. And he consistently put his beliefs into action. That's what made him a superhero. That's why I say that. Because he turned into a superhero. Because he put his beliefs into action. After launching the Melarepa Fund, which produced the Tibetan Freedom Concerts, in his songs he started speaking out against, like, sexism. He was also an early vocal opponent of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, It's not like he became a Buddhist and alienated himself from his friends and family, says DMC or Run DMC. At the Tibetan concert, he was calm off stage, but then when he went on stage, he was ballistic. So Run DMC was there as well. He was still Adam Yauk. So Mike D confounded a clothing line called X-Large with two friends. I don't know if you know who X-Large is. 
It was big at the time, but anyway, the Beasties also created a record label called Grand Royal Records, and I, and a magazine that became of the same name, and I think it came from uh, Bismarcky. Mm. Bismarcky said something like Grand Royal, and they took it and created that. But the record label had a distribution deal through Capital, and Luscious, Luscious Jackson with Kate Schellenbach was on it, and Ben Lee, I don't know who Ben Lee is, but Grand Royale was run kind of like a summer camp, they said. Uh, Sean Lennon was on it, quite a few people. And contracts, Sean Lennon said that contracts would be written on napkins. And that Mike Mills, the graphic designer, said, they don't even send me copy for the shirts and posters typed out. They just tell it to me over the phone, and it could be a little bit more bureaucratic. But at first, the magazine was just to keep fans updated with what they were up to. Then they turned it into a completely other thing. And they soon realized that this was spreading them too thin, and they wanted to focus on the band, so they kind of shut it down. They went into the studio and recorded an album, which was Ill Communication, and they expanded. Oh, Check Your Head. Mm. They went on tour for Check Your Head. I'm sorry. Sorry. Sorry, Rockabies. And so they wanted to expand on Check Your Head, and they tried to perfect those styles. And Q-Tip, which is a member of A Tribe Called Quest, are one of the greatest bands Uh of all times all times we will do a show about mac miller and fife dog we have to five tribe called quest is so like they're just it's i mean i don't think they i don't think they put out a bad song like i don't think you know what i don't think so either like everything i don't think so either it's just like anything you can turn on i mean you might not know what it is and even the beastie boys said that about i mean tribe called quest i mean they were the greatest and you know it's you know it's them you're right you You can hear their voice fife dog or q-tip and you know it's a Tribe Called Quest. Yep. They were so influential. Um, Q-Tip recorded a song called Get It Together, and which is on, people don't know, on ill communication. So maybe we can go listen to it maybe after this. And ironically, he said he was pretty fucked up when he did that song. <laughs> he said, I can't re- really remember making it, but I know Ad Rock took that beat from an old Moog record. Moog was a keyboard that the guy was like instrumental in making this amazing keyboard, but it, it came up with um, like electronic music. It started just really making big, but anyway, the mute keyboard. The Beasties are, he said, the Beasties are the fucking Bugs Bunny of hip hop. They just come up with the illest shit. That's what Q-Tip said. So on Ill Communication, they're interviewed on it. There was this one track uh, and it had to be dealt with, they said. And so they said they decided that it would be funny to write a song about how Mario is hold Mario C is holding us up all down and how he's trying to mess it all up. And they felt like he was sabotaging their great arts. They're making a joke, by the way. So that night they came up with the song Sabotage. Hmm. Ad Rock went over to Mario C's house and Mario recorded him screaming the words into a microphone over that track. And it was all about some mysterious thorn in his side and about the biters and the haters, he said, and it was Sabotage. Sabotage was the first single released from their fourth studio album, Ill Communication, in 1994. Initially, Sabotage was recorded as an instrumental. Subsequently, the BC Boys decided to add vocals only two weeks before the song was finished. Noted filmmaker Spike Jones directed the music video. 
The music video is an homage to and parody of 1970s police drama TV shows such as Starsky and Hutch, Beretta, Hawaii Five-O, and the streets of San Francisco. Like the 1970s TV dramas, this video contains scenes of 1970s cars, costumes, and action-packed stunts such as running in slow motion and sliding over the hood of the cars. Played extensively on MTV at the time, the music video would directly influence the iconic opening sequence of the 1996 film Train Spotting, according to the director Danny Boyle. And they asked Spike Jones to make the video, to direct the video, and he was so excited. He wrote up a little treatment, and the treatment, uh, he said he wrote that treatment at Hamburger Hamlet, which wasn't more than this. He said, we're making the opening credits for that 70s cop show, Sabotage, and we needed lots of wigs and mustaches and a cop car. And the budget was set at 85000 and Adam Yauk said, uh-uh, that's too high. So that's too expensive. So the production company was like, that's the price. You know what, Adam Yauk, that's the price. And he says, well, you know what, we'll just get another production company. Hmm. And uh, they were like, uh, okay. So they took off 35000 from that budget, and they created that video guerrilla style. And it's very 70s type of style. And I know you guys, you kids are young, so there was this whole 70s type of thing of type of cop shows in the 70s. And they really took a spin on that with Spike Jones. And he says that in creating that video, Spike said that he learned a lot from Adam Yelk. He said he was a true original and very punk as always. And he said he really inspired me to keep that attitude in every movie that I did after that, you know, and any type of world that I was in. And people need to remember that fees come out of these artists' back end. You know, that's why he was like, uh-uh, you can do better than that, you know. Mm -hmm. Not to Spike, but to the production company. And so uh, around 1996, the Dalai Lama made a speech at Harvard, and Yauk went along to present... Melarepa's first donation, which was for the Harvard chapter of, chapter of Students for Free Tibet. A representative for the Students for Free Tibet was there. Her name was Deshan, and both of, and uh, she was from Tibet as well, her parents. Well, she was Tibetan-American. And shortly after that, Adam and Deshan met again in Chicago at a Students for Free Tibet conference, at which they were both speaking. He said they were both giving each other advice because they were both nervous. And he remembered liking her and hoping that he'd run into her again and back in New York. And he said, though he was not quite looking for a relationship uh, at that moment, he said he was debating between the idea of being celibate and becoming a monk or actually having a family. And he had spent some time being chased for about 10 months. And he learned, he said he learned a lot from that period. Just trying to be celibate was interesting, he said, because you think you're in control when you feel attracted some, to someone, that it's a conscious thing. But then deciding to be on my own, he said, I saw that those responses are not really conscious ones of thinking and that they're habits and it, that, that it takes time to turn those habits around about being celibate. 
So he said during that time, he decided whether he wanted to try being in a serious relationship or just stay on his own. And at that time, Desha and I started spending time, some time together and hanging out. And it just felt like it would really be great to have a family and that would be the great right, right thing to do. So he married her on May 31st, 1998, um, in a tr traditional Tibetan wedding ceremony. And uh, Rancid played the reception, which is Rancid. I, I was shocked. I'm like, what? And he said that it was her favorite band. I put his favorite, but it was her favorite band, and he asked them to play. Because uh, he said, Rancid is to her like clashes to me. That's what he had said about it at the time. And they welcomed the daughter a few months later. And the minute, as someone said, the, one of his best friends said, the minute he met Deshin, he, met, he made up his mind that he was going to spend the rest of his life with her. And if you ever went, want to see Adam Yauch at his best, look at a photograph of him with his daughter. Mm. That's sweet. And I love that line. So then they go into making Hello Nasty, and this was before 1998, which was their fifth album and probably one of the best albums, which you guys know with Intergalactic. And the Beastie Boys wrote their rhymes again together, sit around the room as they normally do. And Hello Nasty was recording in fits and starts and beginning in October 1995 at G-Sun, but soon after Adam Yauch decided it was time to move back to New York and the others followed. So he was a leader. He was a spiritual leader and the leader of the group. And the album was recorded, recorded all over New York City. So the three of them got together and shared ideas and began recording. At first, Yao didn't want to rap. He thought, I don't want to do that anymore. And ultimately, they went in in the old country. You know what? You love country, Megan. Mike he D. loves country. You love no, country? I don't country? like country oh, as yeah. much as he Mike does. Mike D. has a country album. No shit. Called Country Mike. Yeah, listen to it. I like exactly. some country. I'm kind of picky. Yeah. And uh, they did a, <laughs> recorded a country album with Mike singing, which is hilarious. And uh, do you know how, how they came up with the Hello Nasty title for the album? I can only imagine. You want to hear it? Absolutely. So a Japanese woman named Toko used to work for, their, for a publicity company that represented them called Nasty Little Man. And she wouldn't answer the phone like, nasty little man, may I help you? She'd just say, hello, nasty, in a thick accent. <laughs> and they heard that and they thought, that'd be great. So there were 22 tracks on the album of Hello, Nasty. And the one song that hit the charts was, of course, Enter the Galactic. And that's the star track. On another song, they got to work with one of their musical heroes, Lee Scratch Perry. Lee Scratch Perry was a music producer icon known primarily for his innovative and groundbreaking producing on Bob Marley and the Wailers albums. Besides the Beastie Boys, the reggae mad scientist, as he was known, worked and produced for many artists of different genres, such as The Clash and George Clinton. Longtime admirer of Lee, Keith Richards of the Rolling Stones once said that you can never put your finger on Lee Perry scratch. He's the Salvador Dali of music. He's a mystery. The world is his instrument. You just have to listen. More than a producer, he knows how to inspire the artist's soul. He has a gift of not only hearing sounds that come from nowhere else, but also translating those sounds to the musicians. Scratch is a shaman. 
Lee Scratch Perry continued to record and perform music until he passed away in August of 2021 at the age of 85. Do you know who Lee Scratch Perry is? No. Lee Scratch Perry was the producer on Bob Marley and the Wailers. People can hear the bumper, and I'm probably going to put it on this album about Lee Scratch Perry. He is legendary. So he and Bob were kind of soulmates. For all those people who listen to a Bob Marley song, think of Lee Scratch Perry. That's the producer. And he would jump up and down. If you go and look at the YouTube videos of Lee Scratch Perry, he jumped up and down when he was coming up with the songs. It was pretty cool. But uh, Lee, they wanted Lee on one particular song on uh, Hello Nasty. And so Lee agreed to come in for a few hours and work on a track. And the actual recording session was like a really big deal. He happened to be in New York for a show, so he only had a few hours between the sound check and the showtime on Halloween. And the day of the show arrived, and it turned out there's a huge parade in the West Village on Halloween, which happens here. Mm-hmm. So it was decided that Yauk and Mario C. went to the World Trade Center where his hotel was and brought him back through the thick of the Halloween parade, which was a big deal. And Yauk and Mario do, did show up at the hotel, and they said, look, he has to go back through the train. We can't get a cab. You yeah. can't get a cab. You can't drive through it. And the Lee Scratches, Lee's manager was like, uh, no way. He can't get on a train. He's Lee Scratch Perry. <laughs> and uh, Lee Scratch interjected and said, you know what? It's fine. It's fine. I can do it. So the three of them took the train, and then they had to walk through masses of people from the station to the studio. And Adam Adrock said that the amazing part is that the way most people dress for Halloween is the way Lee Perry dresses every day, which is true. <laughs> he had a rainbow dyed hair and beard, which is true, and buttons and boots to match. And after many hours, miraculously, he said they walked into the studio and they played Perry, Lee Perry, a little bit of what they were working on. And they were so thrilled and grateful because this is their musical hero. That they, that they had that time and moment with him, that they were like, Hail Mary, Hail Mary. He sang on it as well, and they got two to three hours of him in the studio. Wow. And he was a consummate professional, they Aww. said. The track finally had what it needed to become a song, and it ended up being on Hello Nasty as Dr. Lee, Ph.D. So the single Intergalactic is released on May 1998, and it blows up. The album was released in July 1998. It debuts at number one. They tour for the album. It tops a lot of charts in different countries. The pseudonym, this is interesting. They got a Grammy Award out of it as well. But by the way, on tour at hotels, Yauk registered under the, the pseudonym name of I. Clauseau, an inspector, as in Inspector Clauseau, uh, because he was a huge Peter Sellers fan. And all this means is that he was a huge buff and filmmaker, hmm. movie buff. So that he had been directing a lot of the Beastie Boys videos under the name Nathaniel Hornblower, as you, you were talking about earlier. And as the years went on, he became increasingly involved in film in the last decade of his life. He directed Gunning for that number one spot, a real review documentary about high school basketball players. Did you know that? Who went on to the pros? No. I didn't know that. Yeah. 
And some of them I meant to put in here. I meant to put in here some of the. Is that the one that was like? Um, where I they, might have seen it. It's like I that think, thing in New York where they have yeah, that. Yeah, it was old, like Michael Beasley, and it was like. Uh, I think so. Yeah, it, yeah. It was it was that draft class that basically came out, and these guys were just like walking around all over New York. It was Michael yes. Beasley, and I'm trying to remember the other cats that were. You know what? Carmelo. I know who you're talking yeah, about. Um, and he gave an interview about it. But you're right. He directed that. And it was at the Tribeca Film Festival yep. too. Yep. I, yes. I did see the movie. I, I'm trying to remember the other place. I How just did remember, you see it? Where did you see it at? I don't remember. I mean, it was. I, shoot, wow. This, I, I think I saw it when it came out. I mean, it was 11 years ago. It was like 2008. Yeah. Yeah. It was like 11 That's about years ago. Right. It was because uh, it was. I mean, it was such a big draft class. Like Michael Beasley. Like everybody wow. knows Michael Beasley, the guy that's on the Lakers, the guy that just like. He was kicked out of uh, Miami when LeBron came because LeBron was like, no, nope, it's going to be me, D Wade, and Chris Bosch. Really? Uh, yeah. He was the number one draft pick. For mm. them, I don't think he was number. I think he was number two. I want to say John, not John Wall. Derek, I think Derek Rose was in it too. I think Derek Rose was really. In it. You're yeah. right. You're right. I think it's Derek. It Rose. was something. He gets interviews about that. Yes, he directed that. Wow. Okay, because there was some big. Um, and I I don't have this in my notes, but I think it was. God, there's I a big just... place in New York where they go, and like all these kids play basketball in New York. You know what I mean? Yeah, I'm looking it up now. It was I think, like in I think Harlem it, or something, and he talks about that. I think um, I think it was it was yeah. I remember it was, and I had in here and I can't find yep, it. Yep. So it was it was Michael Beasley, Jared Bayless, Tyreek Evans. Jared Don, Bayless. I I know Jared Bayless. Yeah. I went to middle school with him. What? Uh, Brandon yeah. Jennings, Kevin Love. Yeah, that's right. Kevin Love was in Lance Stevenson, Kyle Singler. Um, yeah, I remember that. Yes, yeah, so Tyreek Evans. Forgot about him. Wow, God, Tyreek Evans is that old? I guess, man. Really? Yeah, Brandon Jennings, and that's. I think I. I don't think it was that. Bayless. I, I don't want to say it was that. And they played at a particular place in New York that every every basketball player plays at in Harlem. Yep. And so, in 2008, he founded the production and distribution company Oscilloscope Pictures. I knew what it meant, and now I can't remember now off the top of my head. But uh, and he worked with lots of filmmakers, like his good old pal Spike Jones. And among his distribution picks was a 2009 Oscar-nominated film called *The Messenger*, whose anti-war message he passionately embraced. And when *Messenger* starred, Woody Harrelson won an Independent Spirit Award for his work in the film. He said he spaced out at the podium. And he forgot to thank Oscilloscope. So he said he came back to the table and he was just as nice. And he said Adam was so nice and cool about it. And he was still completely zen about everything. So the Beastie Boys released three more albums after Hello Nasty. But they I don't know if they were as huge as the, that one. But the last album, Hot Sauce Committee, Part 2, was originally supposed to be Part 1 and Part 2. In addition, it was supposed to be released in 2009, but that wasn't to be. Because on June 12, 2009, they played their what turned out to be their last final concert um, on June 12th in front of tens of thousands of fans at Bonnaroo Festival. Have you guys been? I've heard of it. I haven't been. Isn't Bonnaroo in um, Tennessee? Yeah. Yeah. And on the way out of that festival, Yauk's throat was bothering him. And everyone blamed it on the Dust Festival grounds. And within a month, he was on a conference call with Mike D and Ad Rock, telling them that he'd been diagnosed with salivary cancer. And he says, I'm going to be okay. He assured them. 
It's funny because there is a video on YouTube of right after Michael Jackson died of them, Yauk and Ad Rock saying, this is what's going on with me. I have salivary cancer. He explains that on YouTube. So he underwent both conventional and non-Western treatments and remained so optimistic throughout his three-year battle that it never occurred to his bandmates that he might lose. Um, and after he became ill in 2009, they never toured again. And in April 2011, Yauk was doing well enough that the Beasties went ahead and released a new album, which is Hot Sauce Committee Part 2. And it was tweaked, a tweaked version of the LP they had finished just years before, before his diagnosis. And the video that he had directed the year before was released. In 2011, like I said, he directed a video which was starred Will Ferrell, uh, Jack Black, Seth Rogen, in the, the short film Fight for Your Right Revisited. And even in the depths of his illness, he maintained his enthusiasm for the absurd. And he wrote, directed, and produced a star-studded video, long-form video. And it was just a battle, a ridiculous battle between the licensed to ill era Beastie Boys and the future version of the Beastie Boys. And over the last two years of Adam Yauk's life, he started riding horses. So if you're looking, they, they, there was a guy who talked about it. He, would, um, he became thin, white-bearded a cowboy hat, and he had a graying hair, and he would slip in his little western boots and his little stirrups, and he would take the reins and ride throughout like the fields of rural Tennessee because the property belonged to Shell Crow. Wow. You know, um, who was a cancer survivor, as mm -hmm. we know. And they had struck up a friendship when he began calling her for advice on his illness. And they, she said they had gotten to know each other on the 2008 Get Out the Vote tour because, you know, the Beastie Boys were part of that for uh, Barack Obama, President Obama. Mm -hmm. I remember that. Yeah, they were awesome about that. And he found an advanced treatment center in Nashville capable of genetically targeting his cancer. And he asked Cheryl where he should stay, and she offered her 154-acre compound for him five minutes outside of the town. And she has a lot of good recollection of him, of when he first showed up there after flying in from New York. She said, I was expecting to see somebody really weak and pale, but he looked so radiant, as light as the most awake person I've ever encountered. And he was just hopeful to the very end. And I believe he was always on the enlightenment tip. He was always in line with his search for serenity and peace and understanding. And she said, I love that about Adam. And here he is, one of the Beastie Boys, and he was the wisest person that I know. And with his wife and daughter often on hand, he used Crow's Ranch as a refuge. He cooked vegan meals. She said his pesto was always a hit. Mm -hmm. He brought Crow a country mic greatest hits um, album. You might be able to listen to that on, on uh, YouTube. Mm -hmm. And um, he hung out with her little two boys that she had adopted. He even offered to play bass on her upcoming country disc. And in some of his final public appearances, which is true because I saw it, he rocked a, a cowboy hat. Um, by November 2011, he was feeling very weak. And he had long since stopped updating fans on the progress of his illness. And some of his friends weren't hearing from him. But he called up Mike D and Ed Rock and asked them to join him in the studio 
for what turned out to be the last Beastie Boys recording sessions. And they hung out and recorded more hardcore rap songs. And Ad-Rock said they also spent more time making fart jokes and ordering food than recording. And by next April 2012, his cancer had spread. So here's the sad part, okay? On the very night that the Beastie Boys were being inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, he was being admitted into a hospital. He was being admitted into New York's Cornell Will Medical Center where he would spend the last few weeks of his life, last few weeks of his life, surrounded by his, his family, his mom and his dad and his daughter and his wife and her in-laws and his in-laws. And here's this another sad part. He died on Friday, May 4th, night 2012, sorry. And actually it was in the morning. And the induction ceremony that the BC Boys were supposed to be in was scheduled to air the next day on HBO on Saturday, May 5th. Isn't that weird? It's really sad. Soon after his death, monks and monasteries all over the world began chanting to ease his soul's passage, and they would keep doing so every seven days for seven weeks straight. Closer to home after a small family service, friends including Michael Stipe, Ben Stiller, and Jack White gathered on a downtown hotel rooftop for a nighttime celebration of his life. So it's kind of sad because Adam's mom had given an interview right after that, and she said that he died at 9 a.m. on Friday at the New York Presbyterian Hospital in Manhattan with his parents and his in-laws and his wife and his daughter there at his bedside. And he had been admitted to the hospital, of course, on the day that they has celebrated the induction into the, and he gave a speech. They mm-hmm. read his speech, by the way, that he wrote, so people can listen to it. Um, she said that he was conscious until the end and that he was a very courageous guy, her, his own mom said, and that he fought a long, bat, long battle with cancer and that he was hopeful to the very end. And she said that he had been going chemo, had, had been undergoing chemotherapy in the spring, but his health has just deteriorated on and on rapidly over the last few weeks. And she said it just happened overnight. And she said, my son was a terrific guy. And she said he had a brief but really wonderful life. And we're really proud of him. And, you know, that's the thing about Adam Yauk is that he went from being a teenage punk you know, egg toxin, mm-hmm. prankster, b- underrated bass player, you know, credible white rapper, guzzling hellraiser. He did all, he, it was like he evolved through all that stuff. A tinkerer. Yeah. An eternal tinkerer. I think it's a good way to put it and a good way to kind of wrap it all up from the yeah. beginning. I mean, you always, he was he's always, evolved. Yeah. Yeah, he. Uh... But he went through everything with so much of a lightning pace. How old was he? Forty-seven. Oh, that's so sad. He reincarnated reincarnated himself so many times throughout his life. Yeah. He did. So maybe it was a part of his destiny. You know what I mean? That you know, look, in I the mean, stars. It, and I think it. And I think it's a testament to his strong will. I mean, mm-hmm. look, he. 
I mean, with all the stuff, I mean, he could have easily just said, you know what, the hell with Def Jam and the hell with uh, to Russell Simmons for absolutely mm-hmm. screwing us out of a lot of stuff. I'm done. I, I, I don't like it. I don't like the the image I've created for myself or the band. Right. I, I'm sick and tired. I just kind of want to go out and, mm-hmm. you know, never be heard from again and live a normal life. But instead, going back into it to chase the money and to chase the girls and chase mm-hmm. all that stuff and trying to just make the quick buck, he actually made it a, into a... Uh, it was on his terms. It was on his terms, but he was also Completely. doing it for, for a good cause, which right. I think is... Right, which is it wasn't out of a rebellious nature. Or and no. you know what? He stuck something. to his guns. Yeah, he did it for what he believed in. And his band supported that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's what having friendship. That's mm-hmm. what friendship is all about. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, Adam Yauch would say that what Western society teaches us is that if you get enough money, power, and beautiful people to have sex with, that's going to bring you happiness. That's what every commercial, every magazine, music, movie teaches us. And he said it's all a fallacy, as you two know, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And he said that was a realization of that whole license to ill period. And I do like what Rick Rubin said about him. He said that Yauk embraced that out-of-control rock and roll thing more than anyone else. And he said, looking back, I think he was searching for who he was and now he's found that person. And he said, it makes perfect sense to me that he was the way he was and end up, ended up the way he was, you know? And ended on Q-Tip, which is our favorite. Q-Tip said, for me, it's the Beastie Boys, LL Cool J, and KRS-One, and that's about it. And I definitely consider the Beastie Boys hip-hop artists because they can sing. They can't sing. <laughs> <laughs> And that's the end of uh, Rockabies on Adam Yao. What do you think now that you know as much as you know? I actually, I think I'm going to start listening a little bit more. I mean, I think, uh, and to Q-Tip's point, they can't sing with the shit. And I think the high-pitched <laughs> stuff. I yeah. think that was always the yeah. deter. Like, that, that, that's what didn't do it for me. It was just the like, sound is oh. different. But look at how many people came in contact with them and then became, like, even the guy, the, the, I didn't put this in here, but even the guy... I think it's Ian Rogers. I think his name is Ian Rogers. He ended up being a part of Apple, but Ian Rogers is the one that took all those early videos. Mm-hmm. And they found him because he had written into them and he was heavily inspired by them. And he ended up being on Apple Music, like being a huge, big deal at Apple Music because of the Beastie Boys. So many people. Good energy. It's a good yeah. Energy. I mean, Tamara, who was married to Mike D, directed Billy Madison. Wow. Billy Well, that that's probably where Tamara the Davis, see? That's that's probably where the lighting see? of the poop bag on fire exactly. and <laughs> came from. She was a part of the whole Beastie, Beastie Boy. She married Mike D back in the early nineties. Wow. I wanted to say it at that time, but then I thought I'd wait. But you see how many people touched them and how many how many people really Went out and did these amazing wow. things in the world. Spike Jones. I mean, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, Ian look. Rogers. I mean, look at the picture of Spike Jones. I mean, he looks like the epitome of like the Beastie Boys. Yeah. Oh, he loved those guys. Him and Mike D. Mike D. Did a. Um, he did a. Uh, I think a, like a, a magazine, special magazine, and Spike Jones was a part of all that because they loved to surf. He loves to surf, and so, you know, it's just funny how many people touch them that you know so 
that's why I'm kind of glad that now we can do our Mac Miller. Yep. Now these kids can learn about the Beastie Boys and see how amazing they were because they were no more. After he died, they decided, I think they had told him too, we're going to split. Yeah. You know, we're going to break up the band because, you know, it didn't mean the same without him. Well, there is no Beastie Boys without him. No. There is no Beastie Boys without Adam Yalk. You're mm-hmm. right. I mean, nobody can find that voice. No. So, you know, that's it. I know it's kind of sad. It made me sad when I was typing this up. I mean, I remember when he was, I mean. They all end sad, the Rockabies do. Like, well, I think yeah. this I know. one's sad and the Aaliyah one was so sad. Because he's like Aaliyah because he was such a good yes, person. like you, and, uh, he it, evolved. It just makes you sad. <laughs> like, dang, enjoy your life, man. I know, it's a good way. Lesson. Don't get down about anything. You got to enjoy everything yeah. you can. Yeah. So, see, you could have a kid like a Adam Yauk, who's this techno whiz, who blows up dog doo bombs and create bombs and little things that'll surprise Megan when she, like, cuts on the <laughs> fountain and things popping off in her face, and it turns out to be this guy. Yep, Nathaniel Homeblower. Or he turns out to be a complete psychopath. Uh, yeah, exactly. So <laughs> Boom. Well, um, on that note. <laughs> well, thank you, Melissa, for educating us. Yes. All oh, thanks, Mel. Thank you, kids. So. Yeah. So to Adam Yalk, we salute um, yes. because he is a rap pioneer. Truly. And, um, you know, I feel like he's been pushing me to do this um, because I've been wanting to do it for a, a while. Mm-hmm. Um, so he got busy living. He, he didn't did. get busy dying. Yeah. So thank you, kids, and this rock Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to listen to the songs that were mentioned in the series, you can go to a curated playlist of the artists and Spotify under Rockabye's playlist. Please subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. One additional note, the information in the episodes are based on my best research. I'm your host, Melissa. Always remember, you're a shining star no matter who you are.